Hello friends, Pastor Lowell here again with our Return to Rome series. This is number 29. And we're going to begin with a prayer again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing to us in your word the future. What is coming upon the world, we believe we are entering the final events of earth's history. We pray that you would stand, help us to stand boldly and solidly for you at end time. Bless each of our listeners to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is section 5 still. Return to Rome, a common enemy when God's people are hated. And we have been looking at this issue of biblical authority versus cultural conformity in the aspect of women's ordination. Do we still uphold the fundamentalist view of the Bible when it comes to women's ordination? We've been looking at a number of scriptures. The last one we ended with last time was First Timothy 3, 1 to 5. And in this passage, Paul says, This is a truth saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, that's a church leader or a pastor, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. And I was mentioning last time that we were once doing a meeting I won't tell you where we were doing that evangelistic meeting. But we had a doctor attending. He was not an Adventist, and his wife and their son. And the doctor and wife decided, for whatever reason, they were not ready to join the Adventist church, but the son made his decision, and so he asked for baptism. He came for a clearing visit. When we sat down with the family, the father, the doctor was there, and of course his wife and the son. The son was probably 12, 13, 14 years old. As we were going through the clearing visit, the doctor asked us a most interesting question. He said, why do you, he actually asked this question directly to the pastor, the local pastor there. He said, why do you Seventh-day Adventists ordain women to the gospel ministry? You have women pastors. When the Bible says that you are a pastor supposed to be the husband of one wife, and then he turned to 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, and had us read this. And he said, now, how's come you claim to be the true church? Why aren't you in harmony with God's word on this point? And the local pastor had a very creative answer to the uh, it, this particular passage. He, he pulled out some Greek lexicon from somewhere, and he proceeded to share with the doctor that in the original Greek, it really doesn't mean husband of one wife. It's sort of, a, he said in the original Greek, it's sort of gender neutral. And I was listening and watching the pastor as a, watching the doctor as the pastor was explaining this. And I could see clearly the doctor was not accepting anything <laughs> that the pastor was saying. But I thought of this particular version. This is from the contemporary English version of the Bible. This is how it reads 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. It is true that anyone who desires to be a church official wants to be something worthwhile. This is again the contemporary English version. That's why officials must have a good reputation and be faithful in marriage. 
They must be self-controlled, sensible, well-behaved, friendly to strangers, and able to teach. Now you tell me, does that sound different? The contemporary English version, I don't know if this is based on that particular Greek lexicon that the pastor was quoting from, saying that this really is general, gender neutral in, in the original Greek. But this particular version of the Bible says faithful in marriage. The King James Bible says that the bishop or the pastor must be the husband of one wife. Now that word husband in the original Greek means a man, a male, a fellow, a husband, man, sir. <laughs> Those are all male uh, terms. And, of course, the the doctor did not accept at all the, the pastor's explanation. But I thought how far we have drifted from God's word, God's revealed word. Well, that's what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. Then you can read in Titus 1, verses 5 through 9, where Paul essentially says the same thing, that a bishop or the pastor or the head of the church must be the husband of one wife. And then Titus 2, verses 3 through 5. This is another of the no texts. Paul says to Titus, the aged women, this is Titus 2, 3 through 5, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober. You can see it's not wrong for women to teach, but it's the... It's the authoritative teaching that the pastor has. That role God has not given to women. So here Paul says to Titus that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. That brings us to the conclusion of the nine verses that Paul has given us on this aspect of women's ordination. Let me go down to the final one in the New Testament. This is from Peter. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Peter says, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Note that. That if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of their wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair, or of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel, that would be expensive apparel, or in the context, putting on men's apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. That's what godly women are supposed to wear, a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And this is what you'll find most of the women's ordination uh, uh, proponents, those that want to push their agenda, they don't have this meek and quiet spirit. And then Peter says, but for after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. This is what God's word says, reading from Peter. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. So Sarah even called her husband Lord, now I'll have to clarify, my wife has never called me Lord yet, 
And I don't ask her to, but you get the point. In the Bible, clearly, women are to be in subjection to men. They're to not to dominate over men or to take the headship role in the home or in the church. So, coming back to our original question, does the Bible allow women to have a headship role in the home or the church? And we can clearly see the answer is no. We find 18 texts on the no side. And I'm going to post them for you in this particular recording. We'll put them there on WhatsApp so you can have that, all those 18 verses. Now let's go to the yes side. These are the texts that people use to support the idea of ordaining women to headship positions in the church. The first of the yes texts, and essentially there's only two, these are sort of like the classic Sunday proof texts. You can share a hundred texts from the scriptures about keeping Seventh-day Sabbath, and somebody's going to pull out Acts 20 or 1 Corinthians 16 or some obscure text like that, and they'll say, well, see, this proves that Sunday is the day to keep holy. So this is almost like the classic Sunday proof text. But these two texts, Galatians 3.28 and 1 Peter 2, 4-10, are the texts that are most often used to support ordaining women to headship roles in the church. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. I want to clarify right here, this text has nothing to do with gender equality or roles in the church. This is all about salvation. When it comes to salvation, it makes no difference to God whether you are a Jew or a Greek, whether you're bond or free, whether you're male or female, whether you're black or white, what tribe or race you come from, all have equal access to salvation. That's what Paul is essentially saying here in Galatians 3 verse 28. And then the other text that's most often used is 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10, which talks about the priesthood of all believers, which simply means that every church member has a ministry and a mission in serving God and the church body. But not all can serve in the same capacity. That's very clear as we compare Scripture with Scripture. And the question really boils back to, the, to this one. Are men and women equal? Well, even in physical sports, you never have women competing against men in the Olympics. Even the sports people know that men and women are not equal. There are differences. In fact, Ellen White says back in uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 45, this is back in the beginning, Adam's height was much greater than that of men who now inhabit the earth. Eve was somewhat less in stature Yet her form was noble and full of beauty. You can see even in the creation, Eve was not as tall as Adam, although they were considered equal until after sin. And then page 53 says the angels had cautioned Eve to beware of separating herself from her husband while occupied in their daily labor in the garden. With him she would be in less danger from temptation than if she were alone. I wonder why the angels didn't caution Adam not to separate from Eve. Well, we could speculate about that, but we simply can see that in the beginning they were equal but different, men and women. We understand that even today men and women are not equal. Men are stronger, typically, that's a fact. 
women have may, are more pain tolerant. That's a fact. Men have bigger brains, up to 10% bigger. That's a fact. But women are better communicators. That's a fact. <laughs> Men are more logical. Women are more emotional. That's simply a fact of the differences between men and women. Men are better at directions, but women are better at memory. That's simply a fact. <laughs> For men dealing with stress, it's fight or flight. For women dealing with stress, it's tend and befriend. So you can see that God made men and women different, and I'm glad for those differences. I want you to notice what Ellen White says here in Volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 60. She said, the primary object of our college, this was the seminary there originally in Battle Creek, the primary object of our college was to afford young men an opportunity to study for the ministry and to prepare young persons of both sexes to become workers in the various branches of the cause. End of quote. So you can see that she clearly understood that men were the ones to be involved with ministry, pastoring, leading out in the church. So the issue really is, are we going to accept the word of God as it is written? Right, Controversy, page 205, says the same unswerving adherence to the word of God manifested at that crisis of the Reformation is the only hope of reform today. End of quote. We need God's word today to guide us as a church through some of these perplexing aspects that we are facing. Well, friends, we've looked at all five issues dealing with return to Rome. Revelation 13, verse 3 says, All the world wandered after the beast. The beast, we understand, is Rome. For that to happen, number one, Protestantism must have died. We saw that it has happened. Number two, there must be a positive view of the papacy. That has happened. It is happening. Number three, religious unification. That is happening. Number four, removal of competition. That is happening. And number five, a global common problem or common enemy. And if we are faithful to God's word at end time, we will be considered part of the global common problem or enemy. Friends, that brings us to the conclusion of our Return to Rome series. I trust you've been blessed as we've looked at this series. Next time, we're going to transition to a new series entitled Chronology of Earth's Final Events. We're going to look at the 23 stages of the final conflict. And we are already entering stage number three. Don't miss that. That will begin next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do believe anew that we are living at end time. We can see how the devil is attacking this church exactly as your word, Revelation 12, 17, said would happen. We pray that you'd help us to be anchored in your word, to be anchored in Jesus. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God be with you until we meet again.